Hi folks, Bill Michalek here. Welcome to a surprise episode of The Field Guides. We recorded this one back in March of 2015, but for various reasons we never got around to editing and releasing it. Why? Well, I won't bore you with the details, but rest assured, it was mostly Steve's fault. Anyway, this episode found us heading north, to Algonquin Provincial Park in Ontario, Canada, to search for the spruce grouse, a bird that often exhibits a lack of fear when it comes to us humans, but is, paradoxically, often really hard to find. So, imagine yourself out on a clear March morning with us, a hard crust of snow on the ground, and temperatures near zero degrees. Got it? Here we go. Enjoy. Hello, and welcome to the podcast. I'm Bill, and I'm here with Steve. Good morning, Steve. Good morning, Bill. And this is The Field Guide. And what we're going to do today is head out into the woods, into the field, like we do each month. We've picked a natural history topic. We've done a lot of research on that topic. And now we're going to share with you what we've learned. And today we have a special guest on The Field Guides. We have our friend Rich. Morning, everybody. Good morning, Rich. Thanks for having me. And this is also a special episode because The Field Guides is on a field trip. So we have left our usual... Uh, Western New York area, and we have traveled to Southern Ontario to Algonquin Provincial Park. We're slightly in a different spot than usual, <laughs> but we're still pretty close. Yeah, so it's about two hours north of Toronto. This is about uh, four and a half hours from where we usually are recording in the Buffalo area. So we are in a park 3,000 square miles. We are in the habitat of moose, black bear, wolf. And our target species today, which is what, Steve? The spruce grouse, Falcipennis yep. canadensis. There you go. We've it's had a fun name to say. I really like it. Falcipennis canadensis. All right, so why don't we stop here? We are in some black spruce habitat yeah. on the edge of a bog. Good it's place. Like I was waiting for you to bring up a plant. You're talking about all these stupid animals. <laughs> Good place to look for spruce grouse. And this is actually the spruce bog trail we are on. So uh, if any of our listeners have never been to Algonquin, as we said, it's it's really not that far from the Western New York area. This is about two hours north of Toronto, and uh, there's one main road that goes through the southern end of the park. There's lots of interpretive trails that go off that main road. We're on one of those, and this is well known throughout this area of Canada as a place to find spruce grouse because they are somewhat elusive depending on where you are, of course. Yeah, they have a pretty wide range. It takes up almost all of Canada, but they're sort of sparse within that range. Right, you're not going to find high densities of spruce grouse anywhere. Mm -hmm. Now... We brought along our friend Rich because he is very adept at spotting wildlife. <laughs> He's got the eye for it. He does. <laughs> we will find them. <laughs> we have found them on this trail before, but today, I don't know. What would you give our chances? 50-50? Maybe a little less. Yeah, because we are here in late March, mid-March really, and we are too early for the breeding season. If we were here about a month or so later, uh, it would be the height of the spring breeding time and uh, we probably have a better chance but we're hoping that Mm -hmm. uh, we're going to get lucky today yeah and we've gotten lucky on previous days so we've already seen two other members of their family the phasana day we saw the wild turkey Mm -hmm. and we've also seen the uh, ruffed grouse and that was a cool one because the ruffed grouse actually looks a lot like the spruce grouse and so we had to look through our pictures to make sure we got it right that we didn't actually see the spruce grouse so especially uh, the female yeah, the females, there's a lot of overlap there. So why don't we tell people what the spruce grouse looks like, because probably a lot of people don't know. Okay. How about, does someone want to talk about the voice, and maybe I can, or any one of us, just go. <laughs> All who right, wants so to say something? Think of, if you're unfamiliar with grouse, it's a kind of a football-shaped bird. It's 
think of like almost like a chicken, right? Like a chicken-like bird. Yeah, it's yeah. a chicken-like bird. Or with a fan tail. Yeah, that's fan uh, that's sort of the big difference. Yeah, so they're about a, a foot to a foot and a half long. Um, females weigh about a pound. Males are about a pound to a pound and a half. And if you're familiar with the ruffed grouse, which is definitely more common, mm -hmm. it looks very similar to that. The ruffed grouse is also known as the partridge. Okay. So if you've heard that term partridge, you know what that bird looks like. The spruce grouse looks similar. Wait, Rich, what do they call what do they call the spruce grouse? What's that other name for it? They're called the fool's hen. <laughs> right. And why is that? I mean, I think it's worth I think it's worth bringing up why everyone thinks this thing's a fool. All right. <laughs> now hang on, stop because we have a, a a good moment here. Yeah, if you hear fluttering, so we'll explain why. A lot of the birds along the trails here in Algonquin are acclimated to people, so we have several chickadees flying around us right now basically looking for handouts we have red squirrels at our feet and chickadees at our hands i mean i can count four chickadees in the trees around us right now and they're coming within just a couple inches and now there's a chickadee in rich's hand right now <laughs> about six inches away uh, a yeah. foot away from the mic there. hopefully you could hear that maybe you heard the wing uh, wing flutter right right and i think on another day we can discuss the pros and cons or benefits <laughs> and harm of feeding wild populations of birds. We talked about it Which a little. We, yeah, we talked about in our in our winter bird yeah. episode. But, but I think this is, this situation here is a little different because this involves the birds actually landing on the human hand. Sure, sure. So some acclimation of people there. But so, to get back to fool's hen. So why is it called the fool's hen? Well, they're pretty easily approachable when you walk up on them. You can get within five feet of them and they yeah. just kind of, they feel their camouflage just so well they, they don't fly off. Now, I'm good. A lot of a lot <laughs> of what I'm just grabbing them off the ground. <laughs> you can just pick them up. Yeah. A lot of what I've read about spruce grouse, most accounts talk about how they have a lack of fear of humans. Yes, yeah. But at least in where we normally are, are exploring, the ruffed grouse don't have that. They're afraid of people. Mm -hmm. But that ruffed grouse we saw yesterday didn't seem too fearful of humans. Oh no! I mean, all, all the animals here in the park, I feel like, are not very are, scared of us. They're pretty acclimated. Yeah, well, they, the, the ravens are coming real close, and uh, so I guess my question is: spruce grouse in other areas, would they be more fearful of people? I think the reason that they're calling them tame and easily approachable is because this is one of the species that I think it's it's likely ubiquitous. That if I were to guess, just based on what I was reading, yeah, because they didn't come out and directly say it, but I would imagine that it's. It's, I think across the board, they're, they're pretty tame. And, Spruce and grouse I think you can, generally all, aren't afraid of people. They're all foolish enough to let okay. us get close enough to grab them. So. But it's just the rough grouse that are here in the park that are acclimated to people. I would imagine so. Okay. Yeah, because yeah, I was thinking the same thing. Cause well, we, how many times have you seen a rough grouse? Uh, I mean, other than walking too close to one that's just that thinks it's camouflage and you don't know it's there right. until the last second and it and flushes it right in front of you but spruce yeah. grouse will do that too spruce well i imagine grouse. it's not going to let you like grab it slowly yeah. reach for it <laughs> i think you got to be quick at the last second to get them is that's what i was imagining if you're going to be grabbing spruce grouse which we don't yeah. recommend well and i have been here and i have approached the spruce grouse within three feet and they just stare at me oh yeah, yeah. and they don't they don't do anything i know but, i've gotten some pictures with and, and we'll post these online where I'm within feet of the spruce grouse. It's on a branch at eye level. Yeah. And it doesn't seem too concerned that I'm there at all. Yeah. Before we get into the main parts of the spruce grouse stuff, something that I do want to bring up is that, like we said, the birds and a lot of the animals are so used to humans here that they get so close. Gray jays everywhere. Yesterday, yes. they were just, well, they're especially attacking Rich for some reason, and I can't understand why, but. Rich has a gift. Yeah, <laughs> Rich has a gift for attracting animals. But yet, I've never had a corvid land on my hand. That was one of the cooler experiences in terms of, uh, 
birds, you know, landing on you. <laughs> that was pretty cool. The birds were actually following Rich along the trail yesterday. Mm -hmm. as he In mass. No, we did have trail mix and other things that they were attracted to. Not hatches. Yeah. yeah. Oh, I should say, I, I do get some flack for this. What a corvid is. <laughs> oh, this place is corvid heaven. Yeah. So there's ravens, there's crow. Okay, it's all family. The corvidae. So there are ravens, crows, magpies, jays. Um, and so here we have tons of blue jays, tons of gray jays, tons of ravens, tons of crows. That, that's all the corvids here, right? Yeah, yeah, nothing, yeah, but this place flooded with corvids. It's, it's pretty intense, but them. yeah. So let's talk about what the, the spruce grouse looks like. So mm -hmm. typically if you're gonna see a picture of a spruce grouse, it's gonna be a male. They're gray above, black below. They have white spots along their sides and mm -hmm. they have a, a very noticeable red comb over each eye. Oh, uh, yeah. Kind of like a bare spot mm -hmm. of skin over each eye. That word comb, that's something I wasn't familiar with at all before C-O-M-B. Yeah. yeah. Comb. So essentially a bare spot that when they're displaying, that'll become enlarged. But we'll talk about that a little later. Sure. The females, they look a lot like the ruffed grouse. Now, there are two phases of the, the female. Mm -hmm. uh, there's a, a red phase and a gray phase. Did you find that? I did see that there was differences, like yeah. both in the male and female. There's differences between the eastern and western populations, and I think the eastern population, the one that we're more likely to see, has more of a chestnut band on the table, uh, tail. on the tail, than I think more western species, that it really is more of a red, not a chestnut. So the, and the females are just kind of a, a mottled color, I guess you could say. And the hardest part is when you see a female trying to decide if it's a ruffed grouse or a spruce grouse, as Steve just alluded to. A spruce grouse, a female, has a dark tail with a pale band at the end, whereas the ruffed grouse has the reverse. A ruffed grouse will have a pale tail with a dark band at the end. And then the other thing is when they're annoyed or when they're alarmed, ruffed grouse will raise uh, the feathers on the back of their head. A chickadee just almost landed yeah, on the, the mic The ruffed grouse? <laughs> yeah. So yep. that's one reason it's called the ruffed grouse, is it has that ruff on the back of its head. Yeah. And spruce grouse will not. They don't have that. A, a short story here. I was driving down at my cabin down in um, down in the southern tier in New York, and I was just driving my car. I was heading from one of our neighbors' house that I was visiting, and I was and I was heading down the road to uh, my grandparents' cabin, and suddenly this this grouse flies in front of my car, and I have to put on the brakes and I stop. <laughs> just this female, totally standing still, not doing anything, just sort of in wait, like it was just waiting around, and then out of nowhere, a male just comes out almost like it's trying to land right on top of her and she just flushes and he's there totally in display right in front of my car uh, and it was i've never seen a grouse before that i've heard him out you know like you've been hiking and you've heard him oh, without yeah. seeing him yeah and I, I i've had that same experience and until that moment i've never seen a rough grouse and i've especially never seen one display and that was awesome the male just or sorry the female just running away from the male <laughs> running for her life <laughs> yeah because the rough grouse sometimes especially during the spring or into the summer you'll hear their their wing beats. A very deep sound. You'll hear it off in the woods and wonder, what the heck is that? Yeah, and apparently the spruce grouse from, from the field guides I was looking through, it's supposed to sound like thunder in the distance. Did you get that? Did you was read that? Was that the claps of the, the wings? Yeah, it's their, the male display call is okay. supposed to be. Oh, no, I didn't hear that. I, I didn't hear how they make it. I, I assume that it might, have, it might be similar to the rough grouse, but I don't know. Maybe are they clapping? Are they doing a... Well, the, the subspecies, not subspecies, there's a, a closely related species we were talking about, the Franklin's grouse. Yes. Um, and when they're doing their display... Mm -hmm. they will bring their wings up over their back and clap them together. Oh. And it's, you can hear that from over 100 meters away. Mm -hmm. But this, according to what I read, the spruce grouse doesn't do that, just the Franklin's grouse. Okay, and we should, note, we should note that, um, and some people may know more about grouse than we did before, before uh, you know, especially before reading up for this episode, 
but the Franklin's grouse used to be a subspecies of the spruce grouse. Yeah. It used to be um, Felsipennis canadensis franklinii compared to Felsipennis canadensis canadensis. It, but now recently, I think you said 2014 yeah. is when they officially split them. I think you said DNA is what they were looking at for that. Oh, I don't know. I just no. know the, the BirdLife International, the kind of one of the main... Yeah. Bird groups out there decided they're separate species. I'd be surprised if it wasn't genetics if it was 2014, right. but I don't want to make probably any, genetics any based. Yeah, no assumptions. So let's talk about um, the range. Sure. So spruce grouse, uh, broad range. You're going to find them throughout Canada. Um, mm -hmm. And actually, it does. their range doesn't extend too far south into the states. Yeah, Just I want to say they have something against Americans because, <laughs> <laughs> because it's almost like they ride the, binder, the, the southern boundary of Canada. Yeah. And they don't, you know, they, they tip don't really down into the northwest. Well, th you'll see them in Minnesota. You'll see yeah. them in New York, the Great Lakes um, states. Yeah, yeah, but it's just, just barely into the states. Yeah, so. Adirondack Mountains in New York. Yeah, um, we don't have them in Western New York. Uh, yeah, I've never seen one grounds, there. Yeah. But northern New England, they're there. Mm. I mean, that makes sense. It's Canadensis. Right, right. That's where most of its range <laughs> yeah. is. Of Canada is yeah. more or less what that means. And then a lot of Alaska. Yeah. So they like Alaska. One of the papers I found was they're specifically talking about an Alaskan subspecies, and I was like, this is pretty interesting. <laughs> well, got to delete this from my notes because it doesn't make any sense. It doesn't apply. <laughs> yeah. But why don't you talk a little bit about the habitat, Steve? Because uh, sure. a lot of the research that Steve uncovered has to do with the habitat. Sure, I'll just start with something a, a little bit more general. They're a big fan of coniferous forests, and specifically, they're very closely associated with black spruce, though, in a lot of the literature that I was reading, they're not overly specific. So maybe in, in, in Minnesota, th they may have a certain preference, then New York, they may have some other type of preference. Yeah, it seems like they're always associated with conifer-dominated forests, yes. but depending where you are in their range, the specific type of conifer is going to change. Yeah, and yeah. one of the studies I actually used to read up on this um, subject, they actually, when they were doing their random points, they eliminated any random points that fell in an area that was less than 50% um, conifer. That makes sense. Because they're just like, why would we use this for our, right. <laughs> for our data? It just wouldn't make sense. They wouldn't be here. And that's a really important thing in scientific writing and, and the design for an experiment. It wouldn't make sense. Like, random sounds good. Random sounds like the best way to do something. But it really doesn't make any sense when you're looking for an obligate of this, you know, of right. a conifer habitat. So You just almost had a chickadee land right I know. I, I felt like I was being attacked. There's a, there's a spot on the uh, the label on your hat. Yeah. It looks like, a, like part of a peanut or something. Really? <laughs> <laughs> so uh, there was one thing I wanted to bring up. So... So this was a paper that I got from 2016. It was from Forest Ecology and Management. And they were talking about, oh wait, give me a moment. While Steve's looking up yeah. his info, I'll give a sense of, of where we're at. So we were just talking about conifers. I mean, Rich, do you see anything besides conifers in this woods here? No. We have a lot of scraggly looking spruces uh, around us just because they've self pruned all their lower branches. This is a pretty dense forest here. We have a, a pretty good canopy above us. But this is like a, a mid-level canopy, and a lot of what I found said that spruce grouse like kind of a mid-level, mid-successional area Yeah, uh, for part of their year. I'd, I also found that as well. I think we might have touched on the same paper that, that dealt with that. So the interesting part of that paper is that they had two sets of data, modern data, and they had data from about the 70s that they were using, 70s through the 80s. Oh, nuthatch, a red-breasted nuthatch. Just Which we hand. got that wrong last time because I said something. I thought it was Sitta canadensis when we saw the white-breasted, and I think that is the red-breasted is canadensis. Sitta canadensis. Yeah. Okay. okay. So, so what I was saying is that they had two sets of data to compare, and now I actually have to go to the study. But what they found is that in previous sites, so the sites that were used in the 
in the 70s had now become these like later successional forests and they were not finding the grouse in those areas right whereas where they are currently finding them in these you know mid-successional areas where do you remember the species that were growing in in those areas the trees yeah no i don't no um was it jack pine or lodgepole pine something like that they were definitely using jack pine, but not to the extent that they, I think they expected them to. So I think that the big takeaway from this study is that the, the patches that they were occupying, they were both structural, structure, uh, structurally and just the species were um, indicative of a, of a mid-successional um, area. The areas were larger, so they had to be these like mid-successional areas, but they had to be of a larger size. Right. And also, and this is a really important part, the areas that were more heavily occupied were areas where there were they were closer to neighboring patches uh-huh. so if there was a bit like if there wasn't a you think of this corridor effect where the closer big patches are to each other and that they can move from patch to patch yeah. that's a very very useful thing for wildlife it so can know, i helps. talk about it go can, yeah can i talk about island biogeography oh this theory? is why you brought that up yes <laughs> <laughs> so so last night i mentioned to steve island biogeography theory and he wouldn't, t- he wouldn't tell me why it came <laughs> up in the study, because I'm like, I don't know. And it, it suddenly hit me. But <laughs> so Have you heard about this, Rich? No. All right, so this is a, a theory. It's been around for a long time in, yeah. in biological, ecological circles. But one of my heroes, E.O. Wilson, yeah. he published kind of one of the defining studies, along with another researcher in the 60s, kind of setting for this idea. Now, they were looking at islands out in the ocean. Mm-hmm. And they were looking at... Trophic cascades, right? Well, th- they were looking at extinction and immigration. Mm-hmm. And basically what they found is the larger an island is and the closer it is to the mainland, the better species are going to do. Because if there's a big species drop uh, yeah. and the island is closer to the mainland, you're gonna, there's a better chance of immigration. So you can right. have mm-hmm. more of that species coming in. And the reason that immigration is so important is that when you have the same population mating with itself over yes. and over and over again, that's bad. there's something called inbreeding depression. So yeah. I think everyone knows what inbreeding is. Yeah. And I think everyone knows, knows what depression is. <laughs> <laughs> and so uh, what it does is that when you think about variation in a species, what that, that variation actually comes from something called alleles in our, in our genome. And inbreeding depression actually just slowly eliminates alleles from a population. So in a, so in a population that is inbreeding, you, just, you have far less diversity, yeah. and that leaves them far more susceptible to disease and to other ways that can just, you know, any, any type of disturbance can really mess with them. Much less they, of an ability to adapt. Yes, yeah. and that's, yeah, variation helps a species adapt, yeah. and if you don't have the variation, then you're not and adapting. Has, <laughs> that process has the best name because, you know, as you get more inbreeding, there's less variation, mm-hmm. um, less chance to recover or to respond to some threat. It's called an extinction vortex. Oh, I love it. it just gets worse and worse and worse. I love distinction. Vo- <laughs> I love, uh, I can't even say the word. I love extinction vortex, yeah. vortices. Is a, so yeah. getting back to island biogeography theory, over time, over the past few decades, ecologists have realized this whole idea of islands doesn't just apply to islands out in the ocean. It applies to islands of habitat, too. So you're talking about these patches of forest for the spruce grouse. Yeah. They do better when these patches are bigger and closer together. Right. Yeah. And that's that's a pretty regular pattern that you see yeah. <laughs> when people are talking about how are we going to, you know, uh, how are we going to improve habitat and right. how, how are we going to improve populations of a certain species? And we're like, well, we need large areas. We need quarters to, um, linking the patches, yeah. you know, safe areas that they can cross from patch to patch. But the closer those areas are together, 
the less we have to worry about corridors because it's like the patch is the corridor. Right. And it depends on the species. Uh, like for a bird, right. if they're not connected, right. there's a better chance they could fly to the other patches. But mm. if you have a, a terrestrial mammal that can't fly. Right. But when when I think about the, the spruce grouse or the rough grouse, I'm not really thinking about them flying all that much. Right. I mean, they definitely they don't. do. I think we should mention that, though. Sure. They really, especially spruce spruce grouse they yeah. don't like to fly all that much yeah yeah i mean they, they'll be up in in tree branches rich you said uh, what you said that you often see them like 15 feet up well or in the spring a lot of times i'll just see them about you know eye level to 12 feet yeah but yeah. i've yeah. seen yeah. i've seen them upwards of 20 feet yeah the needles off of the spruce and we're also talking that that could be in a um oh what's it called a uh, confirmation bias where yeah. that's the easiest place to see them so ma of course that's where he's seeing them so we're not sure if they're all the way up the tree or if they're really just hanging up in yeah. the top 20 feet or the bottom 20 feet of a tree so <laughs> and since we started talking about habitat and forests i think this could be probably a whole series of episodes unto itself but talking about like forest quality right because in new york state right now new york state is more forested than it was 100 years ago mm -hmm. uh, as farmland has been abandoned and reverted to woods. Sure. People think, oh, we have more forests now. But, but less forested than 200 years ago. <laughs> right, but there's also a big difference between these forests that grow up, these fragmented forests, and the forests that spruce grouse evolved in. Yeah. There's crappy forest that we've created that's very fragmented, these little patches of forest yeah. that don't function like a big unbroken forest uh, with varieties of, of habitats within them. Because that's what spruce grouse need. All of the papers I read, when they're mm -hmm. talking about management, and a lot of it referred to areas that were logged, because okay. that's where a lot of the, the research goes on. Right. And they said when logging is complete, especially if it's clear cut, whether it's replanted or not, it typically results in monocultures or forests where everything's the same age. And that's not good for spruce grouse, because spruce grouse need a variety of successional stages. In the winter time, they're going to head to denser, older stands of forest, and then in, during the breeding season in the summer, they're going to move to earlier successional areas where you have lower trees, more open areas. Right. And we should use that word because um, one of the things they feed on during the summertime heavily is uh, blueberries, vaccinium. Oh, ericaceous. Ericaceous. Yeah. So, so <laughs> I thought I was going to impress Stephen Rich by knowing that word, but. Actually, I'll share this. So, so Rich is like, uh, Rich and I had dro driven up together, and so Rich is like, hey, do you know what ericaceous means? It's like the one word I couldn't, you know, I just wasn't seeing. The, no one was explaining it in the, in the readings. And uh, I was like, oh, yeah, that's Heath. The family's the ericaceae. You know, because I, I study wetlands. I work in wetlands, and so that's something I come across all the time. And then when, when we came across Bill, Bill's like, ooh, I have a word for you. I don't know if you're going to know this. I was like, Rich may be able to answer this. I'm so excited. Please be the same word. And he's just like, ericaceous. And I was like, Rich, tell him what it is. And that was a wonderful moment. <laughs> same question twice. I loved it. And this is why we don't hang out with a large group of friends. <laughs> yeah, we, we get excited about the word ericaceous. Right, right. But so, it's, a, it's a beautiful word. I love it. It is. It is. Too. But let's talk about like Heath's. Sure. Correct me if I'm wrong because I'm just going off of what I, I know. Okay. Heaths are plants that typically grow in relatively nutrient-poor yeah. Yeah, areas. So they have... So it would be evergreen. That's, yeah. a, that's a quality of plants that are generally nutrient-poor uh, nutrient soils. I think when you think about plants in nutrient-poor soils, most of them, almost all of them, have something called mycorrhizae. So yeah. they usually have a fungus. Um, a fungus symbiosis, and that's, that helps them get nutrients. Also, another thing is that they generally do better in better soils, but they'd be outcompeted in those soils. They've they've evolved to have these adaptations that 
let them survive in such nutrient poor areas that other plants really wouldn't be able to do well. Those are specialists. All. Yes. Yeah. And as we said, since spruce grouse hang out in conifer dominated forests, mm -hmm. those are typically not as nutrient rich as a, a deciduous forest, right? Because yeah. it's you know more acidic soils, and as you know we're near a bog, bogs are very acidic, nutrient yeah. poor. So but high species richness. That is true. So the lower the fertility of an area, the higher the species richness tends to be. And that's, that also sort of plays into the amount of biomass, the above ground biomass. So if you have a low nutritional value, you usually have a lower biomass, but you have a higher species richness. So the less biomass you have, usually the higher. So like disturbance will do that. So when you have an, an area with high disturbance, you usually have lower biomass, but higher species richness. Really? So the, the goal is sort of like get a natural process to, uh, to make it so there just can't be a lot of biomass. And then you can't get one species really creating a monoculture and just taking over. So. That's a general rule that's basically true across the board for, for low, low nutrient areas. Okay. Yeah. Rich, how you doing? You look cold. It's a little cold. <laughs> yeah. Do you want to, do, you want, do we want to walk a little Why bit? Why don't we walk a little bit and look at the beautiful, grass. beautiful walking yeah. Yeah. I just wanted to say one thing. We were talking about confirmation bias before. And most of the times I've seen these spruce, I've been here during the breeding season. Oh, yeah. And when they're breeding, they're during their flight display. And I think that's probably why they're only that eye level they do short little bursts of flight upwards right. to attract the flutter females flight. flutter yeah. flights yeah. that makes a and, lot of sense and i think that now the more i think about it, that's probably why i'm seeing them at that height no that i'm glad he said that well i would say something after a little bit of hiking i we're not seeing the spruce grouse but some of the reading i did read was that the spruce grouse in the winter are a little bit more skittish instead of approaching five feet you might get 20 to 100 feet because they don't feel camouflage as well with all the snow Mm -hmm. So they take off a little bit quicker, and we're pretty much crunching through. Yeah, yeah, we're pretty loud. There's a hard <laughs> crust, pretty much everywhere, and yelling about papers that we read about. Yeah. <laughs> All right, we're we're nearing the end here, and I think I think we've saved the best for last, and that is to talk <laughs> about the diet of the spruce grouse, because mm -hmm. I found that to be one of the the most interesting parts of this bird because it also lets me talk about another of my favorite ecological uh, concepts, resource partitioning. Oh yeah. Because you were talking before about species richness and uh, nutrient availability and all that. Mm -hmm. Within any uh, natural system, you're gonna have organisms competing for the same resources. Right. And a lot of times what happens is you'll get similar species that kind of divvy up the available resources. So a good way to think about this is think about woodpeckers and nuthatches. So nuthatches, People call them the upside down bird because they go down the trunk of a tree. Right. And woodpeckers generally go up. So the nuthatch is going to be getting all of the eggs and all of the insects, the things that are hiding in the upward facing uh, cracks in the bark. Right. The right. woodpeckers are going to get the opposite. So they're kind of dividing up the resources that way. They mm -hmm. kind of figure out how to make certain parts of available resources their own. And with the spruce grouse, they can survive their range i don't know if you look their range almost entirely overlaps with the roughed grouse oh yeah it's almost the exact yeah, same it's range. almost yeah. exactly the same but they're eating they're basically eating the crap that no one else wants to eat <laughs> the needles the yeah. buds on the trees yeah. yeah so their diet one study i found said 79 percent of their annual diet so researchers went out once a month and shot a whole bunch of spruce grouse. Oh, is this the, the, the study from the 70s? Yeah, this is from the 70s. <laughs> so every month they went Old out and- Old-fashioned ornithology, yeah, that's shotgun right. ornithology, yeah. And they would excavate the contents of their, their crops, that little pouch in their throat where they store food, and they weighed it. And by dry weight, 79% of their diet, pretty much 80% of their diet was just conifer needles. 
Jeez. <laughs> so what, what 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 does conifer needles even have? Like what, what right, nutrients? It's super low in nutrients, yeah. uh, super low in protein. But that's how they've evolved. They're like, well, I'm going to eat this because there's a lot of it and no one else wants it. Right, right. <laughs> there's got to be a good reason no so, one else wants it. <laughs> this this made me think of a good personal story. Back in high school, I knew a guy who anytime like people would be out and you'd stop in like a little grocery store to get some snacks. Mm-hmm. He always bought a bottle of Verner's ginger ale and a jar of pickles. And, <laughs> and we asked him, why is that what you buy? And he's like, because no one else is going to want to borrow any. So it's all for me. <laughs> I mean, uh, I sure hope no one wants to borrow. Do you mind if I use your pickle for something? Like, what are they going to use it for if, if they're going to borrow it, Bill? Come well, on. Know. Use the wrong word. You know what I meant. <laughs> anyway. And by the way, that was not dirty. I did not mean anything dirty, but that, that is. He was actually speaking of pickles. <laughs> yes, I'm actually talking about pickles. Yes. All right. So uh, one study that I read. Uh, they used a great term, uh, a great way to describe it. They said they've evolved to capitalize on abundant but nutrient-poor resources, allowing them to live in a relatively harsh environment. All right, so during the fall, since conifer needles are so hard to digest, mm-hmm. they actually have to prime their digestive system. So in the fall, they start eating more conifer needles oh. than they do during the, the summer months. And what happens is over the course of the fall, their digestive system elongates. Their, their small intestine, their large intestine get longer. And then where the small intestine and the large intestine meet, there's these two dead-end tubes called cica. And as the digested material moves through the small intestine, when it reaches that junction into the large intestine, there's, some, there's this paste of um, partly digested material. That goes into the cica. Mm-hmm. for further digestion. It'll stay in there actually for several more hours to draw out more nutrients from it. And then there's this undigestible fibrous woody material that's left over. That goes on out of the bird. So you asked what can they get out of the needles? They can only extract about 30% of the nutrients. Oh. And they're already low in nutrients, but they eat so much of it. Okay. So about 20%, they have to eat about 20% of their body weight every day of conifer needles. Wow. So that would be like, if you're 150 pounds, that mm-hmm. would be like you eating, what, 30 pounds right. of some horrible, crappy food <laughs> every day. Wow. Um, one study I found said for 200 days out of the year, that is pretty much all they eat is conifer needles. And it depends, you know, as we talked about, it depends on their, where they, you are in their range they're gonna eat different conifer needles. Like around here, they're pretty much eating the spruce needles. Right. So you can imagine this is this sort of existence, it's close to the limit of what is biologically possible. So they've evolved a sensitivity to figuring out which individual trees have higher protein and nutrient nutrients in their needles. Oh, that could be an indicator of soil characteristics, I would imagine. So but even yeah. in the, the same area like the same like one acre of forest they can pick out the individual trees because researchers have again they've taken these birds caught these birds examined their stomach stomach contents analyzed the nutrient content of different trees Mm -hmm. and they've been able to find that the trees that the grouse are browsing on those are slightly higher in protein slowly slightly higher in mineral content than their neighboring trees interesting have you ever seen soil maps just just as a oh yeah soft shoot yeah i mean a side shoot yeah, they're such a, like, they make sense. Like, you can see where there's patterns and whatnot. Sure. But at the same time, it really is like a mosaic. So in a forest, you're just going to get patches here and there where mm-hmm. trees are going to be in and 
totally different soil characteristics. It's, it's really interesting. Oh yeah. yeah. So they have this digestive system that's helping them. They have this ability to pick out, ooh, this tree is better than that tree. Yeah. And then they also have a lower heart rate uh, and they have a lower body temperature than other grouse species. Right. So they have all these little things working for them that help them get by on this horrible food yeah. that no one else wants to eat. Oh, that's so um, interesting. Well, once the end of the winter time hits, then they can start switching their diet and they do get more variety so they can feed on flowers, green leaves, insects. And as I mentioned before, during the summer, they'll eat more of those, the vaccine, I mean the blueberries, so they eat more fruit and leaves. Right. So, so you said you said that, that one part of their stomach elongates, What which part? The small small intestine, the large intestine, and the cica. Okay. Well, Rich, you actually yeah, I, had the I read specific... That the, the gizzard grows by about 75% oh, right. in size. That's right. So that gizzard is, is the part before the intestine that yeah. birds use. They have bits of gravel and things yeah. to grind up their food. Yeah. So since they don't have teeth like we do, that's is the initial digestion. And oh. I was amazed that their di- I read that their digestive tract actually grows by, or lengthens by 40%. Yeah. That's, that's oh, crazy. That's, that's crazy. a huge, that that's a huge yeah. increase, right? <laughs> now, wow. Steve, I don't know what else you have, but I definitely think we need to talk about their display. Yeah, let's yeah, do that. because we haven't talked about that yet. I've never seen the display, but... I don't think I've seen I didn't. I, I usually look up videos for this stuff, but... Yeah. I, I haven't I seen it in person. All let's right, hear so it. Let's, I, I think, are okay. we allowed to do this? Yeah, sure, why not? Okay, sure. we can hear this. That would be their flutter flight yeah. and their wing clap display. We'll do it, let it go one more time. Yes, yeah. so in late April and early May, uh, the male will perform those flutter flights, going, kind of going up into a tree, then down onto the ground. And then when he's on the ground, he's kind of strutting and stomping around those combs over his eyes. And those large, are, right? Yeah, those are yeah. distended, those are bigger. The black neck feathers, they're arranged around his head like the hood of a cobra. And then the black and white breast feathers, they're all raised up. The tail is held straight up. And then behind the tail, uh, black and white feathers stick out like a pincushion. And then with each step, he closes his tail alternatingly one side to the other, and it makes this swishing sound. Oh. So he's trying to uh, attract a female, and they'll do those throughout that late April, early early May time. So. Right. The grouses all have such cool displays. Like uh, oh, yeah. when I was out west, the sage grouse and the gunnison sage grouse. So the gunnison specific to Colorado, I think. But I th- they have these large red patches that show that, that, oh, that are yeah. exposed on I've the sides. I've seen pictures of those. Yeah. Oh, yeah. They're yeah. beautiful. I've ne- Well, I say when I was out west, but I didn't see them in person. So <laughs> they're, they're, they're on the decline there too. Yeah, so. I have seen the spruce grouse display here. It's pretty impressive. Yeah. 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 I, I to say so so if yeah. you're ever in the, the neighborhood of Algonquin Park, come up to the spruce uh, spruce bog boardwalk. All right. Okay, so well, we may not have found the spruce grouse yet. I mean, we're, we're maybe we're gonna keep trying, but but okay, after doing all this reading, yeah. and I, I don't want any, us, uh, any of us to be too biased, but out of, out of the members of the partridge family, Who's who's your favorite member of the partridge family? Spruce grouse. Spruce well, grouse. spruce grouse. Yeah. All right. Well, me. what do you think? David Cassidy. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> oh no. <laughs> so, I bet a large. Well, I don't know. I was gonna say a large portion of our audience is going who? Who? <laughs> I I think it's the opposite. I think that most of them might know. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. Probably not a lot, a lot of uh, younger people. All right. So, are we? Uh, is that all you have? I still like the gunnison sage grouse. Yeah. I just want to see it in person. 
you know what? I because that's an endangered species that they yeah. they discovered only like 10, 15 years ago, and I'm like, I got to see this guy before. I feel like I don't have the right to uh, to use that one because I haven't seen it in person. Right. Yet. I've just seen. I've, I I thought I was going to be working with them at some point in 2013, and then the the job, the funding, sort of was pulled out from under our feet, and so I wasn't able to get the job. So it was already I was like a big fan of this thing. I'd done all this research, and then I was like, well, looks like I'll never find this guy. So I think it's more like a thing where I really want to see it because I was anticipating seeing it so much really? so, so that's a separate story poor steve <laughs> yeah though i really do want to see the spruce grouse because you know dark beautiful bird the red the red band on the tail oh, yeah. or chestnut i guess for us all but, right so we have to come up in late april early may yeah i'd well, want to come back here in plenty of plenty of times a year because even the plant life should be incredible oh yeah so uh we should tell folks check out the facebook page check us out uh if you want to download the podcast no i'm going to take over here folks because some of the contact information we shared on this outing is now out of date but let me say first Thank you so much for listening, each and every one of you out there. Steve and I appreciate your time, as well as your comments and your likes. They mean a lot to us. If you'd like to support what we do, there are a bunch of ways to help. One of the most powerful ways is to join our growing list of Patreon supporters who have made a micro donation. You can donate quickly, securely, and easily at patreon.com slash thefieldguides. Another way to help is to recommend us to friends and to take a minute to give us a rating and a review on iTunes. Those ratings and reviews help make our episodes more visible. Like and follow us on Facebook. Check out Steve's great work on our Instagram account. You can find it under Field Guides Podcast. And you can always check out our Twitter feed, which is at Field Guides Pod. Also, feel free to email your criticisms, your praise, or your nature questions to us at thefieldguides at gmail.com. Now, I know that was a lot of info. So if you missed any of that, just know you can always find it at our website, thefieldguidespodcast.com. But most importantly, Thanks for listening. Now, go get outside.